turn to the book of Joshua. We started this series last week, and so we're in Joshua chapter 2. So the jo- book of Joshua in the Old Testament and chapter 2. Now, the book of Joshua is a really popular book. One of the reasons it's popular is it's full of great stories. It's full of stories which have unlikely events. That's what makes them such good stories. So you've got the waters parting, the river Jordan parts. You've got the walls of this great city, Jericho, that crumble down. And even in one of the stories, the sun stops still. God's people need some extra time in their battle, and the sun in the sky stops still for a while. But not only is this a book full of unlikely events, we also encounter some unlikely people. Do you ever hear about somebody coming to faith? Maybe somebody you know, uh, an old school friend, a work colleague, maybe even a relative. They become a Christian. They put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you think to yourself, that's the last person I ever thought would come to faith. That's such an unlikely person. The way they live their life, their lifestyle, their attitude, no way. Somebody like that, that's such an unlikely person. Maybe people said that about you. When you came, became a Christian and your life was transformed, people thought to themselves, that person, you, what an unlikely person to put faith in God. What we discover here in this chapter, Joshua 2, is an unlikely person. We discover an unlikely person who puts their faith in God. A prostitute, an immoral woman, a woman called Rahab. But here's the good news of the Bible. God is a God of unlikely people. And that for us as a church family should drive our evangelism. God is a God of unlikely people. The grace of God can reach anybody. No matter how far people's sin goes, the grace of God can go further. So don't limit our evangelism. Don't limit our prayers to the people we think might become Christians, the respectable people, maybe the people who are showing an interest now. Nobody is beyond the reach or the grace of God. Let's read Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua... The son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came to the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come from here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they are from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for they, you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them all on the way to the Jordan, as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God 
He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business to our, of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go to your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into your hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Amen. So reads God's word. Last week when we read chapter 1, God spoke to Joshua. He gave this instruction. The people have been wandering in the desert for 40 years in the wilderness. And he said to Joshua, you're the man. And it's your responsibility to take my people and to bring them into the land of Canaan, to live, to dwell, to set up your homes in the promised land. It wasn't going to be an easy task because there were people living there, enemies, hostile pagan nations. And the first and the biggest obstacle they were going to face when they moved into the promised land was the city of Jericho. The city of Jericho was a walled city. The walls were huge. It had two walls. It had an outer wall. The thickness of the outer wall was six feet, so I'm just over six foot, so my height, that was the width, 30 feet high. If you were able to get through that wall, you encountered the inner wall. It was 12 foot wide, so double my height, 30 feet high. And if you were able to get through those two walls, you met an army because it was a garrison city. It was full of trained soldiers. And as any good general would do, Joshua sends out his spies to check out this city. And when they come into the city, they actually stay with a very unlikely person. They stay with this lady, Rahab, who's a prostitute. Now, it's not surprising to find prostitutes in Jericho. You'll find them in any city. You'll find them in any town. This was a pagan city. The people in Jericho, as they worshipped their multitudes of gods, they lived lives that were full of sensuality. It was a people and a city known for its sexual immorality. And that was one of the reasons God was going to destroy it, wipe it out. It was actually an act of judgment. And as we work our way through the book of Joshua, we'll see as the people move in, they don't just take captives of these cities, they wipe them out. They completely destroy them. 
And people also sometimes think, oh, that's a bit harsh. Could they not have come to some sort of arrangement with the people, lived alongside them? No, we're not understanding the mindset of a holy God because we're actually told in the earlier books what these people were like. People who lived in Jericho, they were godless people. They were people whose lives and actions were marked by immorality of the vilest kind. And so as the people moved in, what they were actually executing was the wrath of God, the judgment against these people who had turned their back upon the living God. And so we find this person who lives in the midst of complete sensuality and immorality. But here's what's surprising. It's surprising that these two spies would go and seek out Rahab. As they entered that city, they were representatives of the children of Israel. They were representatives of the one true holy God. As these two men stepped into the city, they were men who were brought up, who had trained from early childhood to know the Ten Commandments that God had given on Mount Sinai. They knew the laws of the living holy God. They knew what God had spoken about sexual immorality. And yet they go and they stay in the house of Rahab. They also had a very specific mission. Their job was to look around them, to find out what the city was like, and to come back with a detailed report to Joshua. You wouldn't think they want to be distracted by going to see a prostitute. And so it seems like a very unlikely person to visit at first glance. But actually it was a stroke of genius. It's a stroke of genius that they would go to her house because the aim of the spy is to be undetected. You don't want to stand out as a stranger in a place like that. Where was the most common place for male visitors, strangers to a town to go and stay? At a house like Rahab's. It was the place where the merchants, the travelers, the visitors to the town would have been regularly found. It was the least likely place to attract suspicion. And so it was a great idea, it was a great plan, but it was badly executed because the spies were spied. Somebody spotted them coming in. The report comes back to the king and he sends for Rahab. And what we find next is a very unlikely helper. She goes out of her way to help these spies remain undetected and to escape safely. And what Rahab does next is she tells a series of lies to the king. Yes, the men did come and see me, but they're gone. And when they came, I didn't know who they were. And they're, they're away now. And if you go, you'll probably catch them pretty quickly. It's a pack of lies. She knew exactly who they were. She knew exactly where they'd come from. And she actually knew where they were at the moment. They were hidden in the roof of her house. She tells a series of lies. But you know what she actually does by telling those lies? She puts her own life on the line. She puts her own life at risk because if the king finds out that she's told lies, if the king finds out that she's helped them escape, she'll be executed. And probably not in a quick, swift way. Her and her family will go through a cruel, brutal death. Why did she help them? Why did she risk her life? Do you know why? She had heard the stories. Stories that have been going around for the last 40 years. Those great acts of God how God had taken his people and brought them through the Red Sea, how the waters had parted, how God had kept his people safe, how they'd had great victories in the past. And as Rahab had heard those stories, who knows why she heard the stories? Maybe the, the visitors and the strangers who came and stayed at her house had, had picked these stories up and, and passed them on to her. She understood something. She understood that the multitude of gods that her city believed in weren't the real gods. 
There was one true living God, and it must be the God of the children of Israel. And so now she believes. She believes in the one true God. And she decides to help these people. She puts her life at risk because she now believes the truth. And she decides to help with an exchange for her own safety. She strikes a deal with them. I'll save you if you save the lives of me and my family when you come to destroy this city. Now, there's been plenty of discussion amongst uh, theologians and people who write commentaries and so forth about the fact that she tells lies here. She tells lies and something good comes out of it. These spies are kept safe. Was she right to tell these lies? Does the end justify the means? What's the morality of this? Do you ever get an ethical Bible to tell lies if you get the right outcome? What do you think? Do you think she did the right thing by telling these lies? The passage doesn't actually pass any comment on it. It simply reports it doesn't condone it or it doesn't condemn it. In my view, what she did was not right because it's never right to tell lies. It's never right to tell lies even if you have the right motive and justifies the means or it's never right if you get the right outcome. You know, sometimes people say, oh, it's not, it's not a real lie. It's a little white lie. You know, that kind of concept. Now, what does God's word say? God's word's very clear. God gives us the commandments. The ninth commandment is don't bear false witness. Don't tell lies. There isn't a subclause in the Ten Commandments, but if you get the right outcome, that's okay. It's justifiable. No. God's word's very clear and it's very stark. Don't tell lies. And actually, if you tell lies, you've broken the holy law of a holy God. Lying is always wrong because it's always sin. Now, let's not be too harsh on Rahab here. She may now believe she may now have rejected the multitudes of gods that her city believes in and now believes in the one true God. She's heard the stories and she's believed them. But she's an immature believer. She's had no real teaching. Nobody's actually taught her the word of God and the great truths that the God's people, the children of Israel, actually know. She's probably never heard the Ten Commandments. She knows nothing of the ninth commandment. What she is, is she is a person who's been brought up and saturated by an immoral society. And so she acts like a pagan in a pagan city. I think there's a lesson in this for us. We need to be patient with new believers. We need to be patient with immature believers, people who are immature spiritually. We can't expect them to act like mature believers, when they don't have the teaching or the grounding. And so we need to have patience. And so when God does save people and we rejoice even within our own church family and a congregation, that even sometimes unlikely people come to faith, we need to be patient with those people. Sometimes the so-called mature believers still don't know how to be healed. They should do. But new believers, let's be patient. Let's not judge, jump to judgment on them, but what do we do? We teach them, we encourage them, and we show them the ways of the Lord. But you know what the real focus in chapter 2 is? The real focus is not in the lies that she told. The real focus and the glorious thing of chapter 2 is actually in the truth that comes out of her mouth. Let's look at verses 9 and 11 again, because what we see in these verses is an unlikely faith. 
Let's read God's word from verse 9. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Let's listen to that last bit again. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What an amazing confession of faith. What an amazing confession of faith from the lips of a pagan prostitute. She no longer believes in the multitude of gods, but in Israel's God. He is the God and he is God alone. Do you know what she shows here in this statement? She shows more faith than the 10 spies who'd come into that land 40 years before and came back and said, we can't do this. She says, we know that the Lord has already given you the land. More faith in this young believer. What does the book of Romans tell us? Romans 10, faith comes by hearing. She heard these stories of God. She heard them. She believed them. And she puts her life in her, on the line. Why? Because she now has faith in the living God. And her faith led to actions because that's what real faith always does. Real faith is shown in our works, in our actions. We're not saved by our actions. We're saved by our faith, but our faith is displayed in what we do. So she heard the stories, she believed, and then she did something about it. She rescued these men. She protected these men because she knew that salvation was going to be found in the God of these men and them alone. Her faith saved her physically. We'll discover that when we come to chapter 6. And so when the people come in and the walls miraculously crumble, because of the scarlet cord tied from her window, Rahab and her family are physically saved. But you know what else her faith did? It saved her eternally. She's mentioned in the New Testament. She's actually mentioned in the book of James when it talks about the whole aspect of faith and how real faith is displayed in our works and our actions and what we do. And there's two great examples of faith given in James 2. Abraham, the great patriarch, the great father of the children of Israel. He's a likely person to be mentioned. The other example of faith is this unlikely pagan prostitute, Rahab. And so it tells us in James 2 about Abraham. He displayed faith. He showed it in action. He was told to sacrifice his own son Isaac. He lifted the knife. He was going to do it. Why? Because he had faith that God would do the miraculous. That even if he killed his son, God would bring him back to life because God would keep his promises to this family. And so he displayed a great act of faith. The other example of faith in action is Rahab in looking after and saving the lives of the spies. But James 2 isn't the only New Testament re reference to Rahab. When you move into Hebrews 11, that really famous chapter is known as the Hall of Faith, the Hall of Fame, really. It lists the great characters of the Old Testament, the great Sunday school story characters, and it, it sets them up as great examples of faith. So again, you've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, you've got King David, you've got these great characters, a whole list of them. In that list in Hebrews 11, there are only two females listed and exemplified their faith. The first one is a likely character. You've got Sarah, the wife of Abraham, the matriarch of God's people. She had faith that God would 
give her a child, even though she was in her 90s, commended for her faith. The other person commended for their faith was the unlikely person. She was never born into God's family. She was an outsider. Yet she put faith in the living God and she's recorded in scripture as a great example of her faith. That repeats another striking lesson for us. What I said at the start, faith can be found in the unlikeliest of people. The people you wouldn't expect. The one Hebrews 11 verse 6 also say, without faith it is impossible to please God. And so Rahab by her faith pleased the living God. Faith can be found in the unlikeliest people. Never give up praying for somebody because you think they're too far from God. Never give up looking for opportunities to speak to unlikely people. Our God is a God who saves and transforms unlikely people. And Rahab's salvation physically and spiritually as well is an incredible act of God's grace. She was a Gentile outside of God's people, as I said, a Canaanite, people who lived immoral lives. But what did she do? She heard the truth about God. She believed it. She threw herself upon God's mercy, save me, save my family, and she experienced salvation. Reminds me of the words that we find in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. By grace. By grace, you are saved by faith. Not what you've done. Not your past. Past doesn't count. You're saved by your faith in the living God. It's one of the great stories of salvation. But here's the reality. All of us sitting here this morning, standing in my case, we are like Rahab. Her sin is no worse than ours. We might look upon it and we might put the sin in the category. An immoral woman. Do you know what her sin was? an offense against a holy God. Your sins might be more respectable than hers, or maybe they're not. Still the same thing. Still offense against a holy God. We've all disobeyed, and as the scripture says, we're like sheep who have gone astray. We've wandered away from a holy, righteous God. But the Son of Man, that's Jesus Christ, came to seek and save not the righteous. He didn't come to rescue righteous, good living, clean, middle class who did he come to save? A sinner, the lost. And who does he save? He saves those who believe, who actively put their faith in the living God, who actively put their faith in a God who they know can save and rescue. And if God can save Rahab, he can save anyone. Because we're all just the same as her. We are people who have broken God's holy law. But in our minds, we will have unlikely people. Go back to the people I encouraged you to think about at the start. That school friend, maybe you're still at school, there's people in school, they would never be interested in spiritual things. Or somebody you went to school with years ago, you still kept in contact. What about that relative? Maybe they're hostile. Even the fact that you're at church this morning, they would sneer at that. Or they make little digs in the things they say. They're unlikely to ever put their faith in God. What about that work colleague? Who's very antagonistic. No interest whatsoever. Maybe their lifestyle choices are just the polar opposite of what you'd expect. And if God was to save them, there would have to be this radical transformation. 
Let the story of Rahab show us there's no life so rebellious. There's so no life that's so broken that is beyond God's grace. So let's remember that. Let's remember that as we keep on praying for unlikely people. Let's remember that as we look for opportunities to speak to the unlikely people. But the chapter, chapter 2, finishes on a positive note. The spies get away safely thanks to Rahab's help. They return to Joshua and they come back with this encouraging report. And they say to Joshua in verse 24, Truly the Lord has given all the land into your hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melts away because of us. We can do this. Even though the city is fortified, we are able to conquer this land. It may be the end of the chapter, but it's not the end of Rahab's story. Because what we see as we work our way through the Bible is that she becomes a very unlikely ancestor. Rahab was saved. We'll read about that in chapter 6. As the walls crumbled, her house remained because of that scarlet cord. Her and her family were rescued. And they weren't just left. Okay, we've saved you and you're on your own. Do you know what happened to Rahab? It's a beautiful thing. She was brought into God's people. This pagan adopted into the family of God. And so the children of Israel didn't look upon her as some sort of outcast. From that day forward, she was part of God's family. It's a wonderful picture of the gospel. Because when we trust Jesus Christ, when we put faith, we are brought into the family of God. We talk about our brothers and sisters in Christ. We talk about God being our family. It's also a beautiful picture of what Christ does because, you know, he cares for us. He treats us as a family member. That's what happened. She wasn't left as an outcast. She was brought into God's family. And she stopped being a prostitute. Those days were gone. How had she ever started to be a prostitute? The Bible doesn't tell us. Probably the same reason most people end up forced into it, abused into it, no choice and no say. And yet when she becomes part of God's family, that's not going to happen. Because she has the freedom to live her life in a very different way. Her old life has gone. And then something absolutely incredible happens. And only God could do this. He brought her into the family and he treated her like a sister. But somebody wanted to do something even more. He wanted to take this broken life. And he wanted to take this person whose body had been abused over years and to love her and to care for her and to treat her properly. Because the scripture records that she married a man, a man called Salmon. Again, it's another wonderful picture of the gospel. Because the Bible pictures Christ as a bridegroom and it pictures those who put faith in him as a bride. And who are all of us really? We are people who have prostituted ourselves against a holy God. We have lived in immoral ways. And yet when we put our faith, this bridegroom remembers our sins no more. He never holds them against us. And he brings us and he treats us the way a groom should treat a bride, with love and care and protection. He makes those vows that I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I'll never run away from you. It's a wonderful picture of the gospel. This is what happened to Rahab, a man treats her the way a groom should. And he brings her into his family as well. Tribe of Judah. Have you heard of that tribe? That's the tribe she was brought into. And then 
real joy comes into your life because Rahab and Salmon have a child. They have a son. And his name is Boaz. You've heard of Boaz from the Old Testament? He's a great character. He's a great character that we read about. And I think this is an incredible thing. Because you think of her former life, the prostitute in Jericho. Think of all the men who abused her as a youth. Think of all the men who misused her daughter and treated her with no care and no respect. And then the Lord rescues her and changes her life and brings her into a marriage. And she has a child of her own. And she's responsible for bringing up this child, for having an impact upon his attitudes and so forth. And this child, Boaz, grows up. And what do we see? We see love and grace and character ooze out of this man, Boaz, as we read his story in the book of Ruth. Because he sees another woman who's an outcast, Ruth, and he brings her into his family. And he loves and he cares for her. And this woman who had been misused by men for most of her life raises a son who knows how to treat a woman properly and loves and cares for Ruth. Only God could do that. And it is an incredible picture of the gospel. And actually Rahab has an important part to play in this beautiful love story. For many people, the one of the greatest love stories in the Bible, the story of Ruth and Boaz. Because think of the impact she had in raising her son, Boaz. A man who knows how to act and love properly. For several generations, another great man would be born into Rahab's family. Another child would be born down the line. And this child would move into royalty. King David traces his ancestral line back to this pagan prostitute, Rahab. How does the Bible describe King David? He's a man after God's own heart. Think of the generations, family impact, move down the line. And then we keep following the family line. And at the right at the start of the New Testament, the opening of the New Testament is a bit of an anti-climax. You think the opening of the New Testament is going to be really exciting? It's a list of names. It's a genealogy. It's an incredible list of names because it follows the, the, the birth line of Jesus Christ back through the Old Testament. And what name do you read in Matthew 1? You read the name Rahab because Jesus Christ came into the world through the line of this woman whose life was a mess and experienced the grace of the rescue I am saved today. My life has been transformed because Jesus Christ came into the world. And this woman, Rahab, played a significant part in Jesus Christ coming into the world. It's of the same family line. You know what the story of Rahab is? It is an incredible example of the gospel. Romans 5.20 puts it really well. It says, where sin abounded, grace did all the more. Where sin abounded, that's what Jericho was. But grace, transformation, and rescue, even greater. Who could make this story up? But you could take a woman like Rahab and include her in the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. 
See, the most important thing for Rahab was not her past. Her past is gone. Her past is forgiven. Do you know what the most important thing in her life is? Her faith. Her faith in the Lord who is loving, who is gracious, who is merciful, who is forgiving, and a Lord who is able to save. Perhaps you're here this morning, and you're one of those unlikely people I talked about at the start. You have a past. And the fact that your life has flicked up with a, a movie on the screen at the front, and you're bolt out the door. And maybe as you sit here this morning, you think you're beyond the grace of God. God is for good people. God is for respectful people. But my life is broken. My life is a mess. Let Rahab speak to you this morning. Rahab knew that judgment was coming. The wrath of God, judgment was coming upon her city. It was going to be wiped, out of the fa- wiped from the face of the earth. She knew wrath was coming, but she put her faith in the real God. And she found salvation in him. And God saved her and radically transformed her life. Your past here this morning, all of our past, means that we are also facing the judgment of God. And here's what the Bible says. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive everybody and anybody who comes to him. And so this morning, come and put your faith in a loving, gracious forgiving God who's able to save. Trust Jesus Christ and experience the grace that Rahab experienced. Maybe you'd like to talk about spiritual things. Come and have a conversation with me afterwards. I'd love to talk with you, to pray with you, and to encourage you spiritually as well. But maybe as you sit here this morning, you know unlikely people, and those thoughts do go through your mind. They would never be interested. They are too far gone. They would never, ever believe. Do you know what church history is full of? It's full of unlikely people, stories of unlikely people who have come and had their lives transformed. There's unlikely people sitting here this morning. Yes, there's people who grew up in church and spent every day of their life in church circles and never wandered far. Praise God for those people. There's also unlikely people. And people would have said, that person would never trust. But nobody is beyond the reach of God. So don't give up on anybody. Nobody can stray too far that God's grace can't go further. So keep praying. Keep sharing. Keep seeking opportunities. And expect God to do unlikely things in the lives of unlikely people just like Rahab.